Welcome to Birthright, a podcast about joy and healing in Black birth, where we share positive birth stories of those who have lived out their birthright and help heal those who have been denied it. My name is Kimberly Seals Allers, and I'm the founder of the Earth app and your host. This is where we celebrate the ways we find joy in our birthing experiences and ultimately reclaim our birthright. Today, we are traveling to our mother continent to take a unique comparative look at birthing with an HIV-positive diagnosis, both in Uganda as well as in St. Louis, Missouri, here in the U.S. Our goal is to dig deeper into finding joy even with the stigma and social shame of HIV. Across the globe, Black people have been hard hit by the HIV crisis. Globally, an estimated 1.4 million HIV-infected women give birth, with almost 330,000 babies becoming infected with HIV annually. About 91% of these women reside in sub-Saharan Africa. Here in the U.S., where Black people are only 12% of the total population, we are 40% of the 1.2 million Americans living with HIV in the U.S., For Black women, the statistics are even more alarming. Black women accounted for nearly 60% of all new HIV infections, despite making up less than 15% of the total U.S. female population. And here in the U.S. for Black women, 91% of those infections resulted from heterosexual contact, followed by 8% from injection drug use. Clearly, something to talk about. Our guest today, Teddy from Uganda, who is a mother of a seven, five, and three-year-old, and Mary, who gave birth in St. Louis, Missouri, 17 years ago, are two HIV-positive women who had positive birth experiences and HIV-free babies, and ultimately pushed past the obstacles, stigma, shame from church communities and villages around their HIV status, to reclaim their birthright. My name is Teddy Atim. I am a mother living with HIV and I have three HIV-free children and this is my birthright story. Okay, it was in the year of 2013 uh, when I had just completed my senior four, and then I got a boyfriend uh, who got me pregnant. And then later on in 2014, I went for my first antenatal visit with my partner. Uh, when we reached the health facility, as it's a routine in Uganda that every pregnant woman has to go through an HIV test, so we went through the process and we were both tested for HIV. After being tested for HIV, uh, the results were given to us. And then unfortunately, my results tested positive. Uh, while for my spouse tested negative. I was so much devastated and I felt like I had reached the end of the world because I couldn't imagine living HIV positive with a man who is HIV negative. Because first of all, when I got to know about my results, I had a lot of stories in my mind, the questions 
I could ask myself a number of questions that I really couldn't answer them my, by myself. Questions like, what would my spouse think about my HIV status? Since in our, in our community, being HIV positive was a result of being a prostitute. So I had a thought of my husband feeling unfaithfulness from me because of my status. And then I also feared that my marriage could be broken because of the discordant relationships relationship and then i also had a fear about my children or my child that i had by that time the pregnancy i had i had questions like what would happen to my unborn baby if at all i'd given birth i thought my child would also be hiv positive so i lived in a state that was really so painful at that time i had a number of questions that i could ask myself and I didn't have answers from myself. And then later on, we were linked to the mentor mothers who gave me support by giving a living example of themselves. Uh, by then, I met a mentor mother who was a site coordinator who gave me a testimony of herself, giving birth to four children who were HIV negative. And then they also helped me support my partner educate him about HIV, and also encourage him to test after every three months. Then I later on came to the facility during birth. I gave birth at the facility. I also continued taking well my treatment as I was being directed by the health workers. And then later on, I gave birth to an HIV-free baby. That was the beginning of happiness. For over 20 years, Mothers to Mothers has leveraged one of Africa's greatest strengths, its women, toward the work to end AIDS. Through their mentor-mother model, Mothers to Mothers employs local women living with HIV as frontline workers, empowering them to unlock life-changing results for their communities and themselves. Mothers to Mothers has impacted over 13.5 million people across 12 African nations and created more than 11,500 jobs over the last 20 years. Teddy is just one of their success stories. So one of the greatest challenges about living with HIV, particularly now, is not the actual management of the disease per se, but really the social stigma and shame that comes with the diagnosis. Did you experience this in your village? Uh, when we reached home, my the health worker was had some the health worker had some connections with my mother-in-law, so she disclosed my status. Uh, when I'd not yet known that she had disclosed, so when I reached home, after like one month, when we were going for another visit. My, my mother-in-law had already known about my HIV status, so it was not really easy for me because she moved around the community disclosing my status. Uh, when it could reach time for eating, I couldn't eat with them together, so it was really a challenge at first. She could even advise my husband to take another wife since I was HIV positive, and they 
words they talked a lot of things like that woman can die at any time so it was really so challenging to me however after meeting mothers to mothers who cont- who who had who, who, through the mentor mothers they continued supporting my family and educating them about hiv they educated them that living with hiv is not the end of life so and then the community mentor mothers could continue visiting my family every month they could come like three times educating and then also supporting my family and also supporting me and my spouse they had to let them understand that living with hiv is normal i had to educate them and then let them know that someone who is hiv positive has an opportunity in life she can give birth to hiv free children if at all they, they lived in a discordant relationship they still have chances of continuing in a discordant relationship how by a pregnant by a mother who is hiv positive adhering well to her treatment one can continue living in a discordant relationship and i could give myself an, an ex, as an example so my community got educated Hello, my name is Mary, and I am the mother of Sarah, the founder of Pay It Forward Projects, and this is my birthright story. As far as stigmas go, I am the fifth of six children born to a Kojic Pentecostal bishop and evangelist. So there are certain stigmas that definitely come with being a PK, for one. And then on top of that, being a single black woman, uh, a single black mother, and then the stigma, of course, of being HIV positive. Uh, So there are quite a few stigmas that I have uh, had to deal with, prejudices and assumptions, and uh, just being able to live through those, work through those, and staying positive has been a challenging, but it's been rewarding. It's been rewarding at the same time. And uh, at the end of the day, the best reward for me is my beautiful baby girl. So uh, it has all been worth it. I was diagnosed with HIV in 2004. And that was coming out of a relationship with one partner, my childhood sweetheart since I was 11 years old, my high school sweetheart. Uh, We were together until I was 29 years old, the only person that I ever knew. But society doesn't care about that. When you say that you've been diagnosed with HIV or, or AIDS, you know, we are prone to automatically assume the worst about the person and about the situation. And that was not my case. Uh, It was actually simply a matter of infidelity, and uh, it was an emotionally, mentally, and unfortunately at the end, uh, an abusive relationship, but I had to make the choice to, to leave that situation. And after doing so, after finding out that I was HIV positive, that was the first time I dealt with a, a bout of depression. 
and uh, dealing with depression and anger and, you know, just all kind of emotions that are going, you know, through your head, through your mind uh, when you receive that diagnosis. It, it's, it's an experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Um, so I dealt with a lot of depression and anger and lashed out and uh, took on a lot of reckless behavior, you know, to be honest, a lot of reckless behavior. But the beautiful thing is, you know, of my faith and my faith and my trust in God. And I can tell you that in my situation, God chose to bless me in my mess, you know, and for me, that was because all my life, I had been told that I could not have children. Uh, I had a miscarriage with my partner early in life. I was 17 years old when I had a miscarriage. And uh, as a result of that, I had been told, you know, all of my adult life that I could not have children. So that was not something that I expected to be in the cards for me. And so to find out that I was pregnant, now that I'm HIV positive, you know, I had a choice to make. And my choice was to either continue to wallow in self-pity or to accept this, you know, miraculous blessing and, and do what, you know, I needed to do to make sure that my baby had the best chances uh, of coming here happy and healthy. You know, so when I think about my experience, one thing that sticks out to me is my mom. And that's when I, I called her and I told her I was HIV positive. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I didn't know anything about it. You know, and she told me, you know, quit crying and accept your part and put your big girl panties on and bring me a happy healthy grandbaby. Let's just do what we need to do. And so that's what I made up my mind to do. And um, my relationship had been over for about six to seven months at the time that uh, I conceived. And I can tell you that every day for that six or seven months, I cried. You know, every single day I cried. I was angry with myself. I was angry with everyone around me. I didn't want consoling. I didn't want encouragement. I just kind of wanted to wallow. But the moment that, you know, I found out that, you know, I was pregnant and that I was going to have this child, I made up my mind. I cried my last tear, you know over that situation and that in order for me to make sure that my kid was happy and healthy, I had to put that behind me and I needed to make sure that I surrounded myself with people who loved me, uh, with people who supported me and encouraged me, and I needed to educate myself uh, so that I could do the best that I could do for, for my baby. And so that's what I chose to do. So the steps for me were, at that point, I had an infectious disease doctor. And so before I consulted an OBGYN or anything, I went to the infectious disease doctor. And I let him know, hey, 
I uh, took a positive pregnancy test. I have not seen anyone yet uh, before I get my hopes up high. Take a look at my numbers and tell me what are the best odds that I have for bringing, you know, a healthy baby into this world. Uh, because I had a decision to make at that point. Uh, for me, my decision was I simply was not going to do it if, you know, the chances of uh, me having a healthy child were not feasible. Because I, I, watching the media, knew about different children at that particular time. This was about 18 years ago now. But, you know, quite a few children being born uh, with HIV, you know. And, you know, while they were learning to thrive, they were still dealing with sickness or, you know, having to, you know, deal with that stigma of going to school and being HIV positive and things like that. And I knew that I was not going to put a child through that. So the first thing for me was to find out what the odds were. What what are the numbers saying? What What are the statistics? So that I could make a decision on whether or not I was going to have this child because I believe in a woman's right to choose. And, you know, for me, I, I was not going to do that to my baby, you know. Uh, some people may say it's selfish. Some people may say this, that, or the other. And that's okay. That's okay. But it's a decision that, you know, was between me and my God, you know. And uh, I knew that I was not going to bring a child into this world to have to deal with that hardship. So that was the first step for me is talking to my doctor about it. And so once my infectious disease doctor went over my personal healthcare numbers with me and let me know where my viral load was, where my CD4 uh, level was and things of that nature um, and reassured me that it was, uh, you know, a 95.5% possibility that I could have a happy, healthy baby, then I decided to, uh, you know, move forward. So my infectious disease doctor actually referred me to my OBGYN. Uh, who they knew uh, worked with moms in that in that situation, and so I connected with the OBGYN that my doctor set up for me, and she was great. She was great. She was just you know awesome. Walked me uh, you know through each and every step, and we went from there. So my journey was different because I took blood tests. Uh, every week, uh, they closely monitored monitored my CD4 count and my viral load uh, because they wanted my CD4 count to go up, you know, which is my white cell count. Uh, it was important for those numbers to come up and for my viral load to come down. And uh, so at the time that I had been diagnosed, when I was diagnosed uh, with HIV, I was one point away from being diagnosed with full-blown AIDS at the time that I found out about it, literally one point away. But my doctor re immediately started me on a regimen of medication, and uh, that uh, regimen began to bring my viral load down and began to bring my CD4 count up. This was prior to my pregnancy. Um, and then once I 
became pregnant, the medication that I was on was not good for the fetus. So they had to change my medication. And I was very, very sick. It was, it was, I was very sick, but I didn't care, you know, because if, if that's what I had to go through uh, for her, then I was willing to do that. So my uh, first and second trimester were very hard for me. It's uh, the basic or the traditional uh, pregnancy symptoms of the, uh, you know, morning sickness and the, the stomach cramps and everything to the 10th power, <laughs> to the 10th to the power. It was, it was rough. It was, it, it was rough, you know, but necessary. So once I got into my last trimester, I tested rather frequently. They do blood rather frequently just to kind of monitor my numbers throughout my entire pregnancy. And by the time my daughter was born, I went from, you know, having a viral load that was in the thousands and a CD4 account of 201, 200 is age status, or it was at that point. My viral load, my, my CD4 was 201. So had it dropped one more point, then I would have been categorized as full-blown AIDS. And so at that point, I started to see the numbers titter-tattle, you know, and my CD4 count went up, my viral load came down uh, with the medication that the doctor had me on and doing what I needed to do. I was able to have my viral load at an undetectable status by the time my daughter was born. And she's 16 now, about to be 17 years old. And I have been undetectable ever since that time. Wow, what a journey. I'm sure you are looking back thinking about how far you have come. And at the time that I was diagnosed, when I walked into that office, I didn't know anything about HIV or AIDS other than what I saw on TV. You know, so for me, you know, what I saw on TV was sick people dying. You know, I, I saw Philadelphia. You know, I saw the, the movie, you know, where, where the man died. I thought, you know, no, this that's white gay people stuff. No, it's not. You know, I, you know, it was a misconception for me. But there were so many people who thought like I did, you know. And, and you know, I thought it was a death sentence. You know, I thought it was a death sentence. I was sitting there trying to figure out, oh, I got to get my life insurance together. I got to do this. Who I'm going to leave my house to? What I'm going to do? You know, and my doctor said to me when I was diagnosed, and I'll never forget um, my primary care doctor at the time that I was diagnosed. And I went, and oh, I was just crying, and I was laying all over the table. And at that time, they called you in to tell you the person. And I said, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to be my mama first child to die. My mama going to bury me. And she said, Miss Harper, you have better chances of going out here and getting hit by a car than you do of dying of HIV or AIDS today. She said, now, had you been diagnosed, you know, uh, 10 years from now, even maybe 10 years ago or even five years ago, that might have been a possibility. She was like, but look up and live, honey, <laughs> you know, she was like, because the, the science and the medication is so much more advanced, and it was, because 
what I heard or what I saw was, you know, people having to take 15 and 16 pills three and four times a day, you know. And when she told me, you take one pill once a day at night, and that's it. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? I see all these people on TV, all these colorful pills, all this stuff. She was like, we don't do that no more. <laughs> we don't do that anymore, you know? And so that's all I've ever taken. One pill, one night, you know, every night. Do I like taking one pill one night every night for the rest of my life? No, but I'd rather be alive and take that one pill, you know? And even in this 16 or 17 years, medicine has progressed so to the point where I'm actually in the process of changing my regimen and going from that one pill, you know, every day to going to a shot once a month, you know, once a month. You know, that has been tested, you know, FDA approved, you know, because that's the other thing. I want to know who's approving this. Well, there have been some incredible advances on the disease management side, both for HIV and AIDS. But when it comes to the stigma and the shame and the isolation, I'm sure it can feel like we are right back in the 90s. Where did you face the biggest stigma and how did you deal with it? So for me... The stigma came primarily from my environment. It was really more so of an anticipated stigma or an anticipated uh, prejudice, you know, from what you hear in society, really, and just wanting to make sure that I didn't fall victim to that. So I went into this with a certain level of defensiveness uh, for myself because I was determined not to let anybody categorize me or for anyone to, any physician to base the level of care that they provide for me based on my sex, based on my race, or based on my diagnosis. I just I've always been the type of person that when it comes, because I am in the medical field, uh, I believe that our physicians should be held to a certain expectation. And uh, unfortunately, in so many of our African-American communities, our people, male and female, are not educated on their rights. Um, They're not educated on what to look for or what to listen for, you know? And so often it's because we just do the, so-and-so told me this, or so-and-so told me that, you know? And there is a saying that says our people, you know, fail for lack of knowledge. You know, our people perish for lack of knowledge. And so, you know, I always felt like it was important to arm myself with education, you know, with the facts, with the true black and white, uh, you know, of it all. And and so that's what I aim to do. I can't say that I particularly that I know of experienced any prejudices or stigmas. And I think that's because I knew what to look for going into it, you know, and I knew how to arm and prepare myself going into it. And a lot of people don't 
know how to do that. You know, they don't know how to do that, you know, for so many reasons, you know, whether it be uh, educational reasons that they don't know or societal reasons that they know don't know, you know, depending on, you know, what communities they come from or what societies they they don't know. And so I believe that the biggest thing is to educate yourself, arm yourself with education. The misconceptions that are still there, especially in very, very rural areas, those deep, deep remote areas, is that people still believe that every pregnant HIV mother gives birth to HIV positive children. It's still a misconception in my community. And then there is also a belief that living with HIV is, is really like a misfortune, and yet it is not. There is also a, miscon a, a misconception where people believe that someone who is HIV positive was a prostitute before. That was how she acquired the virus. However, Mothers to Mothers is doing a big work in Uganda as far as education is concerned. Yeah. For more context on this issue, I reached out to the AFIA Center, which was established in response to the increasing disparities between HIV incidences worldwide and, in their words on their website, quote, the extraordinary prevalence of HIV among Black women and girls in Texas, unquote. Given their longstanding presence and commitment, we spoke to Helen Zimba, the HIV Programs Manager at the AFIA Center. Helen is a Dallas-based international HIV and reproductive justice leader. Her professional background encompasses both business management and communications, as well as extensive experience in community health. She has also served on the grant review committees for HRSA, the NIH, and as a board trainer for the AIDS Alliance. But she also has a very personal story. There was not much... Um... Uh, education around. I did not know anything about HIV myself, so did the doctor. They did not know what to tell me, and I didn't know how to expect. As a result, what the doctors knew about is to tell me about prevention, which didn't, you know, help me because I was already positive at that time. So I felt like I was robbed a little bit because instead of uh, talking about my uh, health being in the child that I'm going to bring into the world, they just talked to me about not having this child. Uh, it was very stressful because instead of uh, uh, me being excited, I was worried every time I had the doctor's visit. It was just horrible because of a pushback. My OB was literally reading through the book on what was going to happen to me or my baby. And uh, um, because I didn't have any resources, I didn't know where to turn to, I kept going there. Because in Uganda, once you phone HIV status, once you phone HIV positive, the first thing is that you're linked to appear. So when I was linked to appear, 
that was the beginning of the health workers support because they are frontline health workers so they supported me a lot as i am also supporting my fellows at the moment those peers of mine who are hiv positive and then also the health workers supported me so much especially the midwives because they continued educating me on the importance of taking my drugs well and they also encouraged me to deliver at the facility so i really had enough care from them because they showed us love they showed me love they showed me care and then they really also supported my partner so much they were really so much supportive to my family sometimes when i've taken long during my first child when i'd like missed my appointment they could also come in and follow me up to my place my home and then also support me from home so that was more than showing love to me yeah Did you know that less than 15 minutes of your time can help make Black birth safer for us all? Earth, as in the word birth, but we drop the B for bias, is the first of its kind nonprofit rating and recommendation platform for Black and brown women and birthing people to find and leave reviews of their OBGYNs, birthing hospitals, and pediatricians. My name is Kimberly Seals Allers, and I created the Earth app because I wish I had it when I gave birth. I learned the hard way that reading the doctor and hospital reviews at mainstream sites, which were overwhelmingly from white parents, was just not helpful to me as a black single mother at the time. Earth is by us and for us. In less than 15 minutes, you can complete the structured review of your birthing experience. Also, tell us about your prenatal, postpartum, and newborn care so we can inform and protect each other. We turn Earth's anonymous reviews into meaningful data to work directly with hospitals, payers, and providers to improve our care now. When it comes to safe, respectful, and dignified care, we got us. Download the free Earth app now and leave your reviews. Follow the Earth app on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we know that the doctors, the providers can play an important part. I was blessed to have really good physicians. I was in St. Louis, Missouri at the time uh, that I had my daughter. I was blessed to have really good physicians. I had a HIV uh, infectious disease doctor uh, that worked right with my OBGYN. I did not rely solely on the information that they gave me. Uh, I did my research. I communicated with other mothers, nurses. I had to educate myself. Everything from, you know, knowing what my viral load was, my CD4 count. I was a diabetic at the time. So making sure that, you know, I kept my diabetes under control and not only for myself, but knowing what effects it was going to have on the child that I was carrying, right down to any medicines that they prescribed. I wasn't just taking medicines because the doctor told me to take it. You know, I wanted to, 
you know, read and find out about that medication if I could, any long-term effects, things of that nature, because I, I always had that phobia about, you know, you turn on TV and you see a commercial for, you know, allergies, but then it'll tell you, hey, you might be prone to depression or heart attack, diarrhea, things like that. So I'm like, okay, you know, let me make sure that I know what I'm putting into my body so that I know what I'm putting into my child. So the main thing uh, for me was making sure that I was healthy so that she could be healthy. And uh, that consisted a lot of my mental health as well. You know, I believe that you can pass some things to your children that are, are mental and emotionally damaging, you know, before they even get here. So for me, it was very important for me to have prayer, uh, to have meditation in my life, uh, to get my rest, uh, to avoid to avoid negative people, negative situations and circumstances. And that's what I did. I just made everything that I did about her, you know, about uh, giving her the, the very best of me you know, during that period so that she could be what she needed to, to be. Teddy, take us to your birthing experience. Wow. Really, that day I had worked up to, it was a Friday, I had worked up to around four and then I went back home. When I went back home on Saturday and then on Sunday, Sunday in, in the around midnight, yeah, I began feeling the labor pains and then I let my partner know about it. Then after knowing about it, he had to escort me to the health facility. We got a motorcycle and then he escorted me to the health facility. So when I reached the health facility, I got the midwife who always works Work, who always worked at me and then by then I was already a mentor mother so they really handled me with enough care they showed me love whenever I could feel like the pains are coming they're always by my side telling me Teddy just be patient the right time is coming so they really showed me enough love then later on at around seven in the morning I pushed my baby properly. They really don't have anything to reduce the pains. Only that may be when the child is almost, like the child is really almost. And then if maybe you don't have enough energy to push the child, and then there they can, they can support you. There is some medication they can put you on so that you can get enough energy to push the baby. But then they don't have any treatment. They don't have any treatment that they can give you to reduce the pains. <laughs> no, they don't have. Then after pushing my baby properly, um, they we moved out of the labor room. Then after moving out of the labor room, I had to breastfeed my child immediately. Then after breastfeeding my child immediately, I was given nevirapine syrup for the baby. And then later on, 
we had to go home. Teddy, tell us more about giving birth in Uganda. Okay. In Uganda, uh, when a woman comes for delivery, uh, her book is taken off. When the book is taken off, the health worker checks on her records, how she has been attending the antenatal services, and then at all if she was tested for HIV. That is the first step. And then the second step, she's asked to lay on the bed. Then when she lays on the bed, uh, she's been checked uh, how to, to know how she's progressing and then to know whether the time it is already time for her to push or she still has some time to push so after telling you how it is going on if you still have time they can tell you to move around do an exercise you can walk around uh, the maternity room just like that and then when after some time again you can you will be called back to the labor room and then again you're checked if at all the baby is baby's time it's the baby's time to be pushed and then you lay on the bed put your legs up and then you push the baby <laughs> That's how we do it in Uganda. So you were able to breastfeed? Yes. Yes, it is common in Uganda because most of our people are vulnerable and so they cannot afford the replacement method. And then with mothers who are HIV positive, you cannot mix to feed your child because you either decide either you do the replacement breastfeed the replacement feeding or you do the exclusive breastfeeding so most of our mothers do not do replacement because of uh, inadequate money or support or they don't have enough money to support the procedure so most of them rely on exclusive breastfeeding in Uganda and that's what I also use, used for all my children, exclusive breastfeeding. Miss Mary, tell us about your childbirth. I had a normal childbirth. Uh, I did end up having a C-section, uh, of course, because that's what they recommend for, you know, HIV moms. Uh, I had a C-section, and the beautiful thing about it was the doctors had told me to anticipate that um, even though she would most likely not be HIV positive because of the medication that I was on and everything, that she would have antibodies naturally uh, because I did. But, you know, God is so awesome and he is so great that she didn't even have antibodies. You know, she did not have a single HIV antibody in her and that was shocking to a lot of my doctors it was not shocking to me 
because you know I put prayer on her. <laughs> I put I put prayer on her, but I I followed everything that uh, the doctors asked me to do. Hmm. Teddy, what was the process for finding out the HIV status for your child? After we had left the health facility, I was I was told to come back after one month and two weeks. Uh, that is roughly six weeks to come back for the first PCR, first HIV test for my baby, to get to know uh, if at all by bad chance my child got HIV during the period of pregnancy because a child has chances of getting HIV during pregnancy, even when the child is in the womb, or maybe during the time of delivery. That was why the first PCR was taken off at six weeks. And then I also had to come back for the second test. Second test after after weaning off my child. That was when my child was one year. I went off at one year. And then I, I had to take off a period of one month and two weeks. That is roughly a year. And then six weeks. And then they had, I had to do the second PCR for my child to prove during the period of breastfeeding, did my child by any bad luck get infected by the virus? And then she was HIV negative. Also during the second PCR, I was really so, so happy when I got those results because during the period of breastfeeding, it's quite risky, but I thank God that even during that second chance, my child was HIV negative. And then I also had to do the third, I mean the rapid test, that is the final test, at 18 months. So when my child was 18 months, they had to bleed for the rapid test, and also the results were HIV negative. I was really so, so happy about the results. So that was how I got to know that my child is HIV free. Yes, ma'am. So I, that, that's a blessing for me, you know, so after I, and, and the doctors were really, you know, kind of shocked and surprised at that, you know, but I, uh, you know, there's a song that says, whose report will you believe? And we believe the report of the Lord. So I believe that it's all coupled together. You know, I know everyone is is not as faith-based or religious. You have different people from different aspects or, you know, different phases of life or whatever they may believe. That's just my journey. That's my truth. That's my story, you know, is that I could not do anything that I did without having strong faith and having a supportive uh, a supportive community around me. And it was very, my supportive community was small uh, because I had, uh, I was very um, reserved with who I wanted to share my status with. So like I said, I'm, I'm the fifth of six children and my mom and dad. And so for me, my journey consisted of you know, my mom and dad and four of my five siblings. Unfortunately, sometimes we all got that one, <laughs> you know. 
17, 18 years later, that's still my secret that she don't know. Wow, Mary, as a PK, a preacher's kid, I can only imagine what your concerns were around the response uh, from your church community. Can you tell us a bit more about that? For me, I come from what a lot of people in my age and before me deal with when it comes to uh, church folks. Um, and that is, you know, being a PK, there's always a stigma that preacher's kids are worse than everybody else's kids, even though we write with your kids. <laughs> Your kids are partners in crime, but, you know, we tend to, you know, to get the slack for it. And so my my family was from that traditional, don't tell, you know, this is our secret. You know, what will the church people think? You know, things like that, um, being shunned by the church, you know. But what I found out is that they're human too, you know, and that we are so uneducated in the church because for some reason we're under this uh, disillusion that, you know, because mama and daddy have a connection or a prayer life with God, that that makes us exempt, you know, from dealing with the consequences of our actions and our decisions, you know, and so many need to know that, you know, even in the churches. So a few years back, I made the decision not to hide my status anymore and to specifically speak to church audiences and uh, young people in church and letting them know that, you know, you cannot ride the coattails of your mom and dad's prayers. Number one, you got to know the Lord for yourself, you know. Number two, you have to have a moral conscience and you have to make smart decisions. One of the things that has always struck me and saddened me about Black women and HIV, and this is somehow, uh, I should say, somewhat related to the church, is that 91% of Black women get HIV from heterosexual contact. And for me, that includes far too many, quote unquote, down low men who do not feel safe to come out and to be free about who they are. Um, and so for me, reducing the shame and stigma of LGBTQ plus lifestyles or even the stigma around sexual or gender fluidity, especially among our black men, is critical to saving black women. And black women need to know that 91 percent of black women who get HIV are getting it from a heterosexual contact. That's significant. For more context on this, we reached out to the AFIA Center which was really created in response to the absence of programs to assist marginalized women living in poverty who are at high risk of contracting HIV AIDS. Um, the FIA Center in North Texas embraces the reproductive justice framework as the most effective means to tackling this dual epidemic. Mary, what is it that you think Black women need to know? Because there are consequences to the decisions that you make, you know, and and my decision was to, my unsmart decision was to love a man that didn't appreciate my worth and didn't love me back, 
you know, and being accepting of his unacceptable behaviors, uh, which ultimately landed me in this particular situation. And so I speak to young people in churches about, uh, you know, taking accountability, taking accountability for your actions, um, thinking about, you know, what you're doing before you do it, you know, and realize that, you know, hey, it's okay to be in love. It's okay to meet somebody and love them, but know who they loved before they loved you, you know, and <laughs> find out a little bit more or accept that they loved someone before they loved you and recognize that you have the right to ask questions, you know, because it can and it will ultimately affect your life, you know. Absolutely so. And it could have lifelong implications. As we look at the devastating toll HIV has had on our communities and Black women in particular, what do you think we need to do as a community? I think the number one thing uh, that we need in our communities, especially the African-American community, that is not just for the sake of HIV AIDS uh, awareness, but life in period, life period is in the African-American community, we need to teach accountability. We need to teach accountability. We make a lot of excuses you know, in the African-American community, whether it be, oh, you know, the white man held me down from this job or I can't get ahead because of this or that. We need to take accountability. We need to teach our young people accountability and how not to wallow when you make bad decisions, but how you can choose to learn from the bad decision that you made so that the next time around, you can make a better choice, you know, and we need to know how the decisions that we make affect other people, you know, that that is the biggest thing that we lack, in my personal opinion, in the African-American community. We make a lot of excuses. We make a lot of excuses and we do a lot of deflection, you know, deflection onto other people you know, for other things when, you know, we can't change other people's thoughts or opinions without giving them a different perspective. You know, how can I tell you that this isn't the way to do things or this isn't what we're about if that's all I'm showing you? You know, you're going to go off of what you see. And, you know, we're, I'm from St. Louis, so I'm from the show me state. I'm going to believe what you show me, you know. So show me something different you know, show me something different. And so I think that's where it starts in our African-American community. Uh, number one, with education. We need to take accountability in educating our children and not just relying on the public school system to do it, public, private, you know, uh, whatever. We need to take accountability with arming our own youth and educating our own youth. And I believe that that's where it starts. Teddy, what do you see as necessary to move forward? 
what we really need to do as black women who are living with HIV, especially we empowered mothers who are really have enough information about how to live positively with HIV is that we really need to reach further, especially to those clients who still have the other fear about living with HIV. Those ones who are still stigmatized, we really need to reach them and then educate them, support them, and then help them understand their HIV status. Because there are some who are even still in denial. They don't believe that they are HIV positive. So we really need to use our experience, our life experience, to continue supporting our fellow women who are also living with HIV like us. Because when we continue giving them this education, they are going, stigma is going to reduce slowly, slowly. The founder of the Afia Center said it best to Ebony Magazine when she noted, quote, I want to see Black people take ownership of HIV. Yes, ownership. And I don't mean that in a negative or shameful way, but one that is about controlling our destiny. Because when one takes ownership of an issue, then they begin to put in place mechanisms to assure the best outcomes for that situation. Black people carry a disproportionate burden of HIV and have a shorter survival rate than any other racial ethnic group. Therefore, ending HIV in the Black community must become a collective effort and not a targeted one that only focuses on Black gay men and heterosexual Black women. We all need to be alarmed at what is happening to us, ending the divisiveness, demanding that policy leaders stop playing politics with our lives, and continuing to advocate for ourselves. Because if we don't save us, who will? Unquote. Ms. Helen, based on your expertise in this area, how far have we come? And quite frankly, how much further do we need to go? We have come a long way because now even the providers that were not open to learning about HIV, they are doing that now. So pretty much every doctor that is willing, they know about HIV and how to treat women living with HIV. And uh, what has also changed now is that uh, women living with HIV have found courage, have found the freedom to speak up because they're learning more about HIV themselves. We are learning more about HIV. So we are speaking up for, for ourselves and others to make sure that the barriers that we encounter are not there. Now we do have, we know that we have rights to do everything just like a person who is HIV negative can do, a person living with HIV can do. So, Teddy, if you had a woman sitting here, a person um, in tears, in fear, perhaps even in denial, maybe even stuck in her shame around an HIV diagnosis, um, what would you tell her? Yeah. Living with HIV is not the end of life. Living with HIV is not a crime. When one is HIV positive, she has chances to live a healthy life and give birth to HIV-free children. So one should not be stigmatized 
because he or she is living with HIV, it, it, it is not a curse. It is not a crime. It is, it is a disease, just like any other diseases. So we need to learn to live positively with HIV. Then also adhere properly to your drugs so that you can live a healthy life. And then the other thing is that what these women go through, someone like I, Teddy, I had already gone through it. In fact, this is what gave me, gave me morale to accept my status because when the mentor mother told me that she was also positive, I knew that I am not alone. I have someone who has also managed to live with this virus. And then this could encourage me, be like her. I also wanted to give birth to HIV, to my HIV negative child through her experience because I had in my mind, someone has already done it, so I could also do it. Yeah, so this, this is a bit different. It's a, a different model and it's really so much supportive because what I'm going to support this client through, I have, I have already passed through it. So I understand it very well. If it is about the side effects of drugs, I understand. If it is about going through how to do the exclusive breastfeeding, I understand it very well. Miss Mary, what would you say to that person? Be excited about your baby. If, if this is something that you want and you want your baby, look forward to your baby. Look forward to your future with your child. And know that from conception, you are your child's number one advocate. Until they are at a stage and a point in their lives where they can advocate for themselves. So educate yourself. Uh, know what your options are. Um, don't accept no for an answer if you need an yes. Uh, don't accept a yes if you feel no in your gut. You know, um, pray. Uh, feed positive thoughts into your kid. You know, meditation, prayer. They are very important on your journey. Whether you are HIV positive, whether you have diabetes, or whether you're in perfect health when you're pregnant, there are hormones and emotions that we deal with as women that can have us crazy and all over the place. Uh, it can cause us to second guess ourselves. Um, you know, it can cause depression, uh, the anxiety, things of that nature. So I would say to any woman who is HIV positive uh, on their birthing uh, journey, number one, the best thing that you can do for anybody is to first do what's best for you. And that means take care of yourself. Take care of your body get exercise, get rest, take some quiet time, turn off the phone, you know, don't spend the next 
you know, six to eight months, you know, worrying about the baby shower, you know, or, or, you know, fixing up the room, you know, take time for yourself, for your, for your mental health, uh, for your physical health. I would tell any woman with HIV or AIDS, save you some money, put your money away, you know, for unexpected emergencies. Because you never know uh, what our politicians are thinking. You never know what they're talking about in the rooms of Congress that may or may not have an effect on you. So pay attention to what's going on, you know, in the news, in the media, related things. I would tell any woman, there is a website that I recommend that was very helpful to me. It's called thebody.com, and thebody.com is a educational website for people with HIV and AIDS diagnosis, where you can go and you can research any subject matter as it relates to HIV and AIDS. Thank you for sharing that incredible resource. We will be sure to post that link and many more in our show notes. Teddy and Miss Mary, we close every episode of Birthright by asking the question, what is our birthright? First of all, it's love. They really need enough love. Because when you're pregnant and HIV positive, and you don't have someone who is showing that love to you, you feel stigmatized. And you can have thoughts like, why did I, why did I, why should I live with this virus? So when, when you don't have someone showing you love, it becomes so hard. So every positive woman who is pregnant needs love from the community. And this love should begin from the spouse and then from the family and also the community. The other thing that these mothers need is care. They really need a lot of care, financially, spiritually, and then physically. Because when you feel that someone is caring for you, that just only that makes you happy. Miss Mary, as a Black woman living in the U.S. with HIV, who had an HIV-free child as a preacher's kid in a red state, uh, what is our birthright? You have the right to have a happy, healthy, thriving child. You have that right to have a beautiful birth experience. Uh, you have the right to enjoy it, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, for your entire journey. That is your right. You have the right to make the decisions that are best for you and you're a young king or queen. It's your right. In the U.S., society attached so much stigma to Black women as unwed mothers or low-income parents or even with an HIV-positive diagnosis. I often say, do not confuse someone's circumstances with their character. Those are two different things. But regardless of whatever stigma you may be struggling with, know that it does not define you. 
and that you still can have a joyful and positive birth experience, and you can still thrive as a Black mama and parent. That is your birthright. Season two of Birthright is funded by the California Healthcare Foundation and the Commonwealth Fund. Birthright is produced by Motor City Woman Studios in Detroit with Kimberly Seals-Allers as executive producer and Alexa Imani Spencer as researcher and assistant producer. Our music is by Dantrell Robinson, and we dedicate this season in his memory. And don't forget to subscribe to Birthright wherever you get your podcast. Give us a rating and review if you like what you hear. Find episode notes and learn more at birthrightpodcast.com. And don't forget to like and follow the Birthright Podcast YouTube page for exclusive videos and extras. Follow at IMKSealsAllers on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And please support our Patreon account. Together, we are reclaiming our birthright one story at a time.